CEE Central Europe Explained An IDM podcast series powered by Erste Group Episode 13 Before and after joining the EU Persistent challenges in Central Europe with Wiet Dostal Warm welcome to everyone to today's CEE Central Europe Explained podcast episode My name is Dana Martinek and I am a research associate at the Institute for the Danube region and Central Europe in Vienna. In the couple of last episodes, we discussed the conditions, challenges and opportunities related with the process of becoming an EU member state. Going further in the discussion, we will now look at the changes that occurred after accessing the EU by the so-called young European member state with focus on Central Europe. Before and after joining the EU, Persistent Challenges in Central Europe is the title of today's episode. To discuss this topic, I am pleased to welcome Mr. V. Dostal, Research Director of the Prague-based Research Center AMO, Association for International Affairs. Hello, Vitek, and thank you for joining us today. Hello, and thank you for the invitation. Together, as I already said, we will today concentrate on the persistent challenges for Central European countries arising from the integration of these into the EU structure. Let's start with the very basic question. The Central European countries, and here I'm speaking about the Visegrad countries, are members of the European Union for more than 15 years. Looking at the current political, economic, and social situation in these countries, what are, in your opinion, perhaps unexpected consequences of these countries' membership in the European Union? Yes, that's actually a very good question because When we look at um, uh, Central Europe or the Visegrad group countries, and when we try to compare them today uh, with the situation in uh, 2004, when these countries with uh, huge uh, happiness joined the EU, then we have to understand that, you know, not only the Central European countries changed, but uh, Also, Western European countries uh, have changed. The EU has changed. So it is uh, some kind of a process where we, of course, have uh, many challenges. We have uh, witnessed uh, uh, the economic crisis in 2000, uh, from 2008 till 2011. Uh, we've had a uh, so-called uh, migration crisis in Europe. In 2015, we've got a coronavirus right now. So these issues had a, a definitely a huge impact on not only Central Europe, but the EU as well. But uh, what we see is a, a gradual integration of the Central Europe or Visegrad group countries. Of course, that the accession is the major step, but uh, to be fully adopted as a member, it takes some time culturally, intellectually, politically, economically, technically. We've got a transition periods. We've got uh, politicians who had to learn how to behave in the EU with all these structures. And of course, it took some time. And also, thanks to the accession of the Central European countries, the EU has changed. It had a, a huge impact on how the EU works today and how successful the project is. The, the huge enlargement in 2004 was one of the major successes of European integration. Thank you very much. Uh, I would like maybe to ask you, because uh, for me it's interesting that 
you said the politicians should learn how to behave or how to be able to behave in the EU structure. Uh, could you maybe shed more light on, on this topic? Well, when there was a re regime change in a turn from 1980s to 1990s in, in Central European countries, everyone believed that uh, our mission is to catch up with the West to become members of the EU and, and NATO. So we reached the end of the history. And that was the mission for 1990s. But suddenly when we became members of NATO and EU, we learned that that is not the end of the history. So there was a need for some kind of a change of the mindset. Uh, it takes some time. Some politicians think that uh, somehow they have to still compete with, uh, with the EU, that bad Brussels is the enemy of us. It is easy to sell it. So that, you know, that takes some time, but I don't think that it is the case of the Central European countries only. The same you have in Austria, the same you have in, in the Netherlands, the same you had in Britain with its consequences. So it is not a special thing, but this process of learning uh, was visible in Central and Europe. You already mentioned that, of course, it takes some time. Um, I would like to go back maybe to this change of mindset you mentioned. What is the state of affairs when it comes to change of mindset? Of course, it doesn't relate only to Central Europe, as you said, it relates to Eastern Europe, Southeastern Europe. But what do you think, in which period are we in currently? Did the change of mindset occur already or it's not the case? Will that occur in the foreseeable future? Here, I think we have to differentiate the four uh, Visegrad countries because we witnessed the uh, four different stories of the integration of brains into the EU. In the case of Poland, uh, it is a large country. It is, of course, uh, one of the board members because of its geopolitical impact uh, and military strength. And Poland has always been more self-confident than the other countries, I believe. For Polish political thought, uh, integrated Europe without Poland is a nonsense. And that's kind of an attitude they, they have towards the, the EU. Uh, they are much more self-confident in uh, setting uh, the expectations to it. And uh, therefore, I think uh, that Polish political class is much more mature in uh, dealing with uh, the EU structure uh, of the country. Thank you very much. So you touched upon all the benefits and ability of political leaders or national governments, member of the national governments, uh, of Central European countries uh, within the EU. You mentioned the deep uh, EU integration, but how all this uh, actually goes in line with, with this uh, recent or current anti-EU uh, attitude in these countries, as you mentioned already regarding the refugee crisis and the quotas or the negotiations on the EU Green Deal or recently also the rule of law and the control mechanism which was somehow related to the future EU budget. How all these things, this approach or this attitude of these uh, national governments goes in line with the EU integration. And you also already mentioned that it's the Hungary, for example, caused a uh, headache. So could you, could you explain that, how, how it works actually? 
Well, you, you mentioned a very interesting thing that uh, these approaches are an anti-EU approaches. Well, I think that this perspective, it makes our analysis uh, perhaps you know, too easy. Uh, we have to look into the details. None of these countries, uh, they would like to discuss something uh, like uh, departure, leaving, withdrawal from the EU. We've got some politicians, uh, they're mainly in the Czech Republic, uh, some extremists in, uh, in Slovakia, but none of uh, them is very serious uh, and has a, a huge impact on the government. In the case of Poland, uh, the same is the case of Slovakia, Hungary. We've got a very huge support of uh, the population for uh, the membership in the, of course, the Czech Republic is a bit more complicated story, but at least in the three countries, we've got uh, the huge approval of the EU membership. What is the case and problem here is that sometimes these countries voice different uh, opinions on the initiatives which are coming from the European Commission, from some EU member states. And of course, it causes a, a political debate, uh, what actually is quite natural. Uh, in some political arena, uh, you hardly ever have uh, uh, the same voices, uh, the same opinions. What is the trouble for Central Europe uh, is the fact that, uh, that the different opinions are not always uh, accompanied with plans how to solve some situation. That was the case of uh, the so-called migration crisis in 2015, which was uh, very smartly used politically by Viktor Orban, which was uh, connected with uh, some extremist rhetorics in, in, in Central Europe. And, and there was a lack of uh, any own plan how to solve uh, the situation together with uh, international norms uh, and laws which, which are there. And it was very difficult to find a solution. The, instead of trying to find a solution, that hard rhetorics was, uh, was uh, presented there. Still, I, I wouldn't put uh, these countries uh, and, and the politicians in charge into a basket of uh, uh, those with uh, the anti-EU uh, uh, attitude or anti-European uh, policies. The situation is much more complex. You already touched upon the issue that the majority of population is actually in favor of the EU and European integration. And I think one topic which is quite related to this issue is maybe not all the achievements and benefits of the European Union are visible enough in the respective countries of Central Europe. It seems quite often that on the regional level, the EU is not perceived as strong. Therefore, the support for the EU is comparatively lower there. Um, do you think, is it an issue of communication on the EU side or is it an issue of reluctance on the side of national governments or is there a lacking some sort of infrastructure which would allow the EU to get in touch directly with the local actors to show the achievements and benefits of the EU membership uh, of these countries? 
What is your opinion about raising awareness about the EU among the ordinary citizens? I think that, you know, in general, citizens in Central Europe are aware of the importance of, of the EU. The question is whether they approve the deeds which they consider to be the activities of the EU, or do they consider, consider them to be a, a positive or negative? In general, the, the power of, of the EU is understood and sometimes even overestimated. We've got, again, uh, different stories. I would like to concentrate on two countries I know the best, the Czech Republic and Poland. In Poland, as I said, you know, Poles are, I think they are still the nation which is the, the, the biggest lover of the EU. They really perceive the membership as a very important. And as I said, for Poles, uh, European integration without Poland is a nonsense. They, they believe that Poland can play an important role in the EU, and they see how the European funds contribute to the development of the country. And this development of the country is not uh, uh, questioned by the political elite. You know, yes, we've got uh, um, uh, some kind of a, of a new narrative in Poland, the question uh, how much, so to say, integration of the internal market uh, contributes to the future development of the Polish economy, so it does not fall into the middle-income trap, etc., etc. But in general, the integration, economic integration, is considered to be a, a huge success. And you can see it in Poland when you travel through the country. You see that uh, in, in places where 15, 20 years there was nothing, you've got a new railroads, uh, highways, uh, infrastructure in general. In the case of the Czech Republic, I think that the main problem is that the expectation about uh, uh, the integration into the EU was too high. If you look at the opinion polls and uh, read what people believed uh, would be the change uh, when we finally become members, then you see that people expected a better political culture, better uh, administration, uh, less bureaucracy, what is interesting, uh, and, and things which you know um, the EU itself cannot bring. That is up to the political elite. That is up to the, the state administration itself. This dream uh, disappeared in 2005, 2006, 7. Everything was not so rosy. There was a domestic political crisis, fell of the government in the middle of the EU Council presidency, and then the, the economic slowdown. So these factors definitely contributed to, to the situation when the Czechs do not think that... Uh, the EU is so exceptional as uh, it was portrayed uh, in 1990s, and they have to find a new narrative because the narrative on, of 1990s failed. It is possible to find a new narrative, I think, but it uh, will take some time. Thank you. So what narrative do you think should be developed in order to, to integrate even more, the, not only the Central European countries, but probably also the East European and Southeastern European countries, what is the narrative which would be the driving force in the future in order to create a more integrated, concise Europe? I think it is a mixed mixture of, uh, of the things which need to be done and uh, ideas which have to be accepted. What we've got here in Europe 
is uh, some kind of, of, of a lack of trust between the, the East and West. It has been much said about the East-West divide. When you look into the policies and you uh, study the uh, policy areas where we actually think that there is some kind of a divide between the East and the West, then uh, you hardly find a clear dividing line between the, the, the Western members of the European EU and the Eastern members. So it is in our minds and uh, we have to find a way uh, how to deal with it. Uh, the problem is that since the, the Central and Eastern European countries are aspiring or becoming the, the members of the EU or the, become finally again part of the part of Europe, you know, this old Kundera's idea that uh, uh, the Central Europe was kidnapped by some kind of uh, Asian hordes uh, was still there in 1990s. And uh, this idea of the return is still with us. The impact is that, first of all, when I speak to the Western Europeans, I say that the problem is that we know you better than you know us. And therefore, uh, sometimes Western Europeans are surprised that there is some history uh, in Central Europe, which, which you know, suddenly reappears uh, on the surface and uh, which has an impact on the political decisions and which has an impact on how people think about politics. When we speak about uh, Britain, then we say, okay, we know that, you know, they have been always uh, a bit uh, separated. They have, uh, they had their imperium, you know, they are different. When we speak about, uh, about French and we say, okay, yeah, we know that it's a huge country and uh, they have a, a big aspirations and grandeur and everything. Uh, we all understand that. But we cannot approach, for example, Poland in a way that we just say, okay, they are still not that many years in the EU, only 15, and they have to grow up. That is not a, an approach how you speak with uh, your partners. Perhaps there is, it is something different than the fact that these countries are, are not uh, mature enough. They have uh, something uh, behind, they, they, and they will shape and co-shape uh, the future uh, of, uh, of the EU. So this mutual understanding is one of the things we have to uh, acknowledge. And at the same time, uh, Central and Eastern European countries have to understand that it is our Europe, that it is our future, our destiny, and that we co-shape, really, uh, in fact, co-shape uh, it. I think that it is acknowledged in some countries, uh, not that much in my country, uh, in the Czech Republic. Uh, it will take some time. And we have to show uh, that we've got an impact. And it is a positive impact. An impact that, that goes in the line with uh, what people actually think and expect, uh, what people actually expect from the EU. There are many examples, and uh, that is a task uh, for the future communication on the EU in, in my country. Speaking about uh, the future and shaping of the European Union, uh, my final question would be, what is, in your opinion, the role of Central Europe or the future prospects of the Central European countries when we look at the year, for example, 2030-2034, once all these countries will be member of the EU for 30 years? What do you think? What is the future role of the Central Europe? 
Central Europe has very often been a source of a conflict, which then very often grew into international conflict. We've got uh, religious wars, we've got uh, First and Second uh, World War. And nowadays, the, the, the Central Europe is an area of uh, stability, of the economic uh, growth, uh, of uh, cooperation. You know, we, we've got to remember that uh, the accession to the EU did not mean only the integration of the Central Euro- and Eastern European countries into the Western Europe, but also an unprecedented integration of the Central Europe itself. Something we have, we have never had, even in the old good Austro-Hungarian times on a such scale. It is a story of a success. And I believe that since this integration is going on, economically, at least economically, we, we see in numbers that uh, the mutual trade between, uh, for example, the Czech Republic and Poland has been growing since 2004 up. The same is the case of uh, uh, the other bilateral trade uh, uh, statistics. I, I think that the Central Europe could really become the hub of the European cooperation. The same was the case with the Benelux uh, in the 20th century. So let's believe that Central Europe would become the Benelux of the 21st century. Thank you very much, Vitek. I think that was a nice conclusion. You can definitely say that the European Union is a great success. And yeah, I would definitely share your opinion that if the future role of the Central Europe will even grow much more than is the current role, I think um, that's definitely the right direction also regarding the integration of other EU member states uh, from Eastern and Southeastern Europe. At this point, I would like to thank you very much uh, for sharing your views and your expertise uh, and for joining us today for our CE podcast episode. Thank you very much. Thank you. It was a pleasure. And also many thanks to everyone who were listening to our episode. This was CEE, Central Europe Explained, before and after joining the EU, Persistent Challenges in Central Europe, an IDM podcast series powered by Erste Group. We are looking forward to welcome you to the next episode. IDM Podcast. Institute für den Donauraum und Mitteleuropa. Institute for the Danube Region and Central Europe. European Perspectives. Regional Actions. Cooperation and Expertise since 1953.